0: Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. Good morning. I cannot figure you guys out for the life of me. I cannot figure you out. We, all summer long so far, it's been kind of light in the second service and really packed in the first service. And we come on July 4th, and I'm like, oh, nobody's. everybody's going to the lake today. I see how it's going to be. No, everybody was coming to the second service, it looks like to me. So, that's cool. That's all right. Just, we're glad you're here. Welcome. I want to, uh, before I get started, I want to do one little uh, matter of housekeeping, little matter of business. I didn't do this a month ago when I should have, and I, I was, I, it, it ir- this is one of the things that irritates me about me, is I don't, I'm not good at these kind of things, but just because I'm not good at it doesn't mean I'm not going to try. And um, we have a guy on staff named Kyle Nelson who just led you in worship, June sixth, two 2004, was Kyle's first Sunday as the the worship leader at this church. And I don't know about you, but for me, he he just makes church a lot of fun for me. He makes church a beautiful experience for me every Sunday, and I love him dearly. So I would really appreciate it if you would hug his neck today and tell him personally what he means to you. Uh, how he has impacted your life. The value of Kyle, I know you guys think that what he does on this stage is awesome, and it is. And as far as I'm concerned, I could pray right now and go, we could all go home, right? I'm not going to, but we could. <laughs> but Kyle's greatest strengths and Kyle's greatest value to me personally happens in rooms that you're not in. Happens in places where, where we're just talking, um, iron sharpening iron, friend being a friend, kind of thing. And um, we are unbelievably blessed to have that man at this church. And we need to thank him appropriately. So hug his neck. Yes. <laughs> Six years, dude. Can you believe that? Six years. Isn't that amazing? God. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to look at the remarkable, unbelievable, <laughs> famous and yet rarely read story of the city of Sodom, of the famed twin cities Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom was a real city, and its remains are located at the south end under the Dead Sea, or what is also known as the Salt Sea. And it's ironic, but the, that particular place where Sodom was is the lowest point on earth and um, it was an actual city spoken of in books like Genesis spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel it was also referenced by a first century historian named Josephus who was not a Christian he just happened to he just was a, a first century historian kind of talked an awful lot about Rome and what was going on there and and um uh, there's a book called The Works of Josephus, and, and and the city of Sodom comes up in his writings. There were also several Jewish rabbinical writers who spoke of Sodom. You could go out on the internet and Google Sodom and probably find much of what I'm going to tell you today. Um, this story that we're going to look at today took place 2,000 years before Christ. It took place before Moses, before the law, before we had the Ten Commandments, before anything like that, before there was a Jewish nation, this goes back to a time when, when God first spoke to Abraham. Here's what we know about Sodom. It was a part of a, a string of cities, about five cities along this, this, in this valley, this very fertile valley. And um, it was on the edge of the Salt Sea, which was at one time a lot smaller than it is now. And it was a very, very wealthy city extravagantly wealthy i mean beyond your wildest dreams wealthy they're not really sure where all that wealth came from they think it had something to do with the salt uh, which was a very precious commodity back then it was used to to trade and if you had salt you had a good thing going it also had some medicinal purposes uh, value to it so they don't know for sure but this whole valley was really fertile. And, uh, and Sodom was a very wealthy city. Now, there's no law, there's no Ten Commandments. Men and women are living basically according to their own conscience. They're doing whatever they think is right in their own eyes. And so, the city of Sodom, because it was so wealthy, went basically along the lines of what a very, very wealthy group of people said: "This is what's going to happen." And so, um, there, as a result, there were no boundaries. Um, to really inform a conscience, there was, there, there kind of were no real rules or laws. And uh, consequently, here's what the people of Sodom did um, they decided that they wanted to completely control their culture and totally control their city. And they said, We want this to be a city full of pretty people, we want this to be a city full of wealthy people. And if you're not pretty and you're not wealthy, you're not welcome in the city of Sodom. And so they. Uh, passed some rules and some laws that gave the citizens of the city of Sodom permission to do anything, I highlight that word, anything they wanted to to people who visited the city of Sodom in an attempt to keep poor people and needy people and, and unpretty people out of the city. So if someone showed up at the city gates and was begging, if someone tried to move into that city that was not wealthy, it was pretty much open season on that person. They were not welcome, and, and actions would be taken to make sure that they knew that they were not welcome, if not eliminated. Um, in fact, there is a piece of law written by a, a rabbinical writer that says, everyone who strengthens the hand of the poor or the needy with a loaf of bread shall be burnt with fire. Charity was a crime in Sodom. The prophet Ezekiel put it this way. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, meaning the other cities that were in that string, were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. The idea being that they had so much that they didn't even, they didn't even worry. They just didn't, you know, they were just lazy. They, they had all they needed. They was, was just, I'm going to lay on the couch and you feed me grapes kind of thing. You know, they just, they were unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. And the prophet Ezekiel said that the guilt of Sodom really revolved around that. That was the problem. We know Sodom and Gomorrah as very immoral cities, and they were extraordinarily so. Um, There were no boundaries sexually. It was was like uh, a city without a conscience. Anything would go. I know you think it's bad in America. I know you think our culture is just off the deep end, and in a lot of ways it is. But we don't even approach the kind of off-the-hook immorality that was going on in Sodom and the mindset that went along with it I mean just all you got to do is look at the way we responded to to the Haiti crisis or to uh, Hurricane Katrina or any crisis watch Americans just pour out money and pour out time and energy to help people who run into trouble and poor people and needy people you see it all the time Sodom did not have that mindset. Sodom—it was all about them, and, and if you're not one of us, then you're really not welcome here. In fact, there was a story about a lady. Um, there was this guy that, that was hanging around the city, and, and he was poor and didn't have anything. He was begging, and they—they um, they, of course there was a, a law. You can't help this guy. So the the idea was he'll either leave and go to someplace else or he'll die, and we don't really care which, but we don't want him a part of our city, and we're just going but you can't feed the guy, and um, so they kept wondering, how's this guy hanging around, because nobody's feeding him, but, but yet he still lives, um, they come to find out that this woman was, was walking out as she would carry her water jar to the well every morning, she was carrying flour in the bottom of her water jar, and she was pouring it out into his jar before she would collect her water for the morning, well, they caught her doing that, and they somehow affixed her to the city wall, stripped her naked, poured honey all over her, and, and the bees came and, and swarmed her and, and killed her. These are the kind of people we're talking about. And the only reason they did it was because she offered aid and comfort to someone who was poor and needy, and that was against their rules. They didn't like that. This is how conscious less of a city the city of Sodom was. Something else they did, they had sleeping quarters in the middle of the town square, this kind of like this open-air um, sleeping quarters, and so it was kind of like a trap. It was it was um, it was designed so that if visitors to the city, if you were getting there late at night and you, 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 you know, instead of going to the inn, you could go to this open-air sleeping quarters, and they were hoping that you would come in and sleep in there, and then they had people that were assigned to patrol that area at night, and if they found you in there, it was fair game. Whatever they wanted to do, they could do. They 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 might um, enslave you. They might murder you. They might rape you. They might take stuff from you. Uh, these were not nice people, and these were people that were not messing around. You were not welcome in the city of Sodom if you didn't have good looks and lots and lots and lots of money. And so that's just the kind of people we're talking about. That's the reputation that Sodom had. And it kept poor people away. Poor people knew, don't, you don't want to mess around with Sodom. It's not a place for me to go. And at this point, you're thinking, what in the world kind of sermon are we going to get out of this? Stick with me. Just stick with me. Charity was forbidden and illegal. It It was as bad as a city or a culture could get. I mean, I can't imagine it getting much worse than that. It was a dangerous place to live, dangerous place to visit. And the reason that the city shows up in scripture is because the nephew of a very famous person in the Bible happened to live in the city of Sodom. The nephew was named Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham, just before the story that we 're going to look at today. Lot and Abraham, who were both very wealthy men, they had so much cattle that their cattle were kind of getting in each other 's way there wasn 't enough grazing uh, ground for them, and they were kind of they were starting to bump up against one another and the the um, you know the servants weren 't getting along there was a lot of issues there, so they decided to split up. Um, Abraham and Lot decide to split up. They, they meet on this mountainside, and, and Lot basically, Abraham looks at Lot and says, Lot, where do you want to go? I'll give you first pick. You can go where you want to go. Lot looked down on this very fertile valley in, in which Sodom would come to rest, and, and he said, I'll take that. And so Lot went down into the valley, and, and Abraham took his cattle and went somewhere else. Now, it makes sense that Lot would have been embraced by the people of Sodom because Lot had an awful lot of cattle. Uh, Lot was fairly well to do, and he could fit in. He was one of the club. He probably bought his way in. He probably, you know, demonstrated right up front, hey, I've got some means, and, and um, so he, he was one of the guys. So he moves in, and he sets up residence in this morally bankrupt, this morally polluted city. It was very, very bad. Now, there are parts of this story that are so foul and that are so bad that I will not read them to you this morning from the stage. Okay, you're thinking, oh, great. So if you are a person that doesn't read your Bible and you think, well, I don't want to read the Bible because the Bible's boring. When you go home today, you sit down in your chair and you read Genesis 18 and you'll understand why I didn't read everything in here. If we were going to make a movie out of this chapter of the Bible, we would rate it R. Okay, it would be you'd have to have your mama and daddy go with you to see this movie because it would be not a good one. Um, it is anything but boring, trust me it 's for mature audiences only but and so i 'll change a word or two today. Just give me a little license but there 's a principle in this story that is worth mining out, and I hope at the end of the story to to kind of drive home this one singular point uh, for the, for the day. Um, we find this principle throughout the old and the new testament it, it surfaces again and again, but this is really the first place that it surfaces. Um, there's also some stuff here of interest to someone who maybe has gone to church and fallen away, a person who, who you know, used to go and thought, ah, I don't want to do that anymore, or a person who maybe is coming back to church. We have a lot of people like this. I don't think we, some of you that go to church here all the time realize how many people are among us that are either um, have fallen away, have never, ever been to church, and this is like their first experience, or are atheists and are just, you know, they're not, they don't some of them are atheists, some of them are agnostic. They're saying, you know, I just, I don't know what I believe, but but I just like the people here, and I just like the way I feel when I come, and so all of those kinds of people are certainly welcome at Cross Lane, and we love having people like that here, but but it's important for you to realize that not everybody grew up in the church, and not everybody, I'm going to do this story today, and I venture to say there's a bunch of people who've never heard this story before, so it'll be good stuff for all of us, but um, there's a great lesson as well here for them, because We find out something incredible about the character of God in this story, the story of Sodom. Start with Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham, and we're not really sure what that looked like. I don't know how the Lord appeared to Abraham, whether it was a man or whether we're going to read about these three guys. I don't know whether one of them stood out over the other. I'm not really sure how that works. but, But the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was still... Uh, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men. And again, I don't really know, you know what about these three men, what kind of form they were in, but they're there, and Abraham sees them. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So he sees these three guys. He he He's going to bring them in because he's living in a tent and, uh, and he's going to fix them a meal. One of the things that's really important for you to understand about this story today, because uh, later on this is going to surface, you have to understand about this culture. Yes, they may have been, and now this is where Abraham is. It wasn't bad really probably where Abraham was. The bad stuff's down in Sodom. But the whole, this whole generation, this whole culture, this whole anybody living pretty much, hospitality was a big, big deal. Okay, if you, if you, someone came to your home, it was incumbent upon you to protect them, to provide for them, to to make sure that all their needs were met. So if someone comes to you, the worst thing in the world you can do is not treat them well. So what you see Abraham doing is what you would expect anybody to do, which is, in this culture, is to, which is to embrace them and say, hey, come, you know, come be a part, um, which kind of is what makes Sodom just this real aberration in a lot of ways. But I think at this point I've confused you. We got Abraham on this side over here, and he's talking to these three guys, and he's being real hospitable. But what's going to happen is these three guys are going to leave here, and they're going to go down into Sodom a little later, where it's not so hospitable. Okay, so that's what's happening. Let me—I've completely messed up my me, my message at this point. Um, so so he comes into the tent. And, and these three guys come into the tent, and they're talking to Abraham. And one of the guys looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, this time next year, you're going to have a son. Now, that's, you know, sound, that's cool. That's cool, except for Abraham's about 90-some-odd years old, almost 100. And, and, you know, he's, right, I'm going to have a son this time next year. Right. And he says, no, you're going to have a son. Well, in the next, back in the kitchen area of the tent, I don't know how they set up tents, you know, in the, in the day, but but Sarah, the wife, is in the kitchen part of the tent, and she hears this. She overhears this guy tell Abraham that he's going to be a, a daddy next year, and she laughs out loud because, you know, she's <laughs> she's looking, she's saying, you mm, know, in our house we say NGH, not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And so she laughs out loud. Well, the guy says, hey, you know, I heard you laughing. What are you laughing about? She said, oh, I didn't laugh. And he said, no, no, you laughed. You know, what? what's going on about that? And she's she, you know, no, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't laughing. Well, anyway, Abraham. Um, God is going to honor you by giving you a son, and that son is going to be the father of many nations. He, he's going to, he's going to be, um, you know, the the beginning of some great thing that I'm going to do. And so Abraham is given this promise by this this um, representative of God. Then the men get up and they're getting ready to leave. It's time for them to go. And this is where we pick up the story. Verse 16 of Genesis chapter 18. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, because one of these is obviously speaking on God's behalf. Then the Lord said, and we're going to skip now to verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and that word outcry, you might, if you have a pen, circle that word. And their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And what we have here is this very important little theological Thing that shows up early in the book of Genesis, this word outcry, this this idea that, that, and you find it throughout the Old and New Testament that that it reaches God's ears from time to time. These people who are under duress, these people who have been mistreated or are in pain or feel pressure, they begin to cry out to God, and 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 the, God says, you know, this I hear their outcry. There's a you, you see it in this book, you see it uh, in the book of Exodus. When Moses is told by God, the outcry of the Israelites in bondage has reached me and I'm going to do something about it. The idea that God has heard the outcry and is ready to to move into action. Once in a while in scripture, this language gets used. And and to say that there is a group of people being mistreated, persecuted, or under duress in some way and they've cried out and God's going to move into action. Which means that these angels are whatever they were, these representatives of God, have come to Sodom because there has been an outcry of a persecuted people. Verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, and again, I don't know how he did this, I don't know what it looked like, but he's going to start now to bargain with God. And this kind of gets comical. Um, this is what's so fascinating. We learn something about God in this discussion. Verse twenty-three. Then Abraham approached him and said, "Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked?" Abraham knew that God was about. To, these guys were going to go down and see Sodom and get an eye full of Sodom, and it was going to be like, "Okay, everybody out of the pool because the party is over, and God's going to spring into action. It's going to be really bad." And he knew the reputation of Sodom. He knew what God was going to see when he got down there. He knew the chances were good that if he saw that what was going on in these guys in Sodom that it, it, they'd be history. So Abraham begins to bargain and say, God, it's, it's going to be wicked there, but there are some righteous people there. Are you really going to wipe out the righteous people with the unrighteous people? Now, the word righteous that you see here is different than the word righteous that we see in the New Testament. When I use the word righteous, normally I define that, and I've I've taught you how to define that word, right? When you see the word righteous, it means right standing with God, okay? That's usually what we mean when we say the word righteous, right standing with God. And we have a right standing with God because of our relationship with Jesus. But in this case, there is no Jesus. In this case, there, there really is no Jewish law. There's no way, there's nothing that you can do to say, I've done this, therefore God sees me this way. There wasn't any structure for, for that way of thinking at all. So when they use the term righteous, really the, the, word that you, the words that you need to hear is God fear. God fear. When Abraham is talking about the righteous, he's talking about a person who best he knows, best he can understand, according to his conscience, he's trying to live a good life, upright, righteous life just, you know, however, however best way he can. And um, it's just somebody who believed in God and they're, they're just trying to live by their conscience. Um, it has really nothing to do with what's been written out in the Bible. They didn't have a Bible. And so Abraham says, there's some good people down there. Are you really going to go destroy the whole city Because of the bad people? Verse 24, what if there are, this is great, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Now he's guilt-tripping God, okay? And you've done that. Oh, God, you wouldn't. Now, come on, God, really? Come on. We've all kind of done that. Verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. God, surely you're not going to treat the righteous people the same way you would treat the unrighteous people. Surely you're going to differentiate between those who do good things and those who don't do good things. And then the Bible, I don't have it on the screen for you. I, I neglected to get this slide in. But it says, far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham believed and he probably was the first monotheist that he believed that there was one God and that that one God was the judge and that he judged everything and he says aren't you going to do the right thing are you really going to punish everybody because because there's a there's a group of people that really hasn't done anything wrong now to put this in perspective for you the the city of Sodom probably you know we think cities and we think metropolises we think big cities um, when you hear the word city associated with Sodom, you need to think of it in terms of a, of a city between the size of 8 and 1,200 people. Okay, that's about how, size, uh, how big of a size of a city we're talking about. He, Abraham says, look, of a 1,000 people, if you find 50 righteous people, are you really going to destroy those other 950 people? Because there are 50 that are, that are really, you know, doing some good stuff. And we find something out about God in verse 26. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. In other words, I will not do to 950 people what, what they've got coming because of these 50 That I would find that would be righteous. Verse twenty-seven. Then Abraham spoke up again. So he's going to be like our children now, and he's going to push the issue. You ever had your kids get a little bit, and you know that whole give an inch, take a mile thing? Here it comes. Here comes Abraham's pitch. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of, not the 950, not the 50, now he's making it really about five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? Do you realize that a five-person margin, God, could be the difference? So are you really going to wipe the whole thing out? Come on, God, think the way I think. And God said, okay, if, if I find five less than 50, I won't destroy it. If I find 45 righteous people, I'll let the city stand. Abraham's not done. Verse 29. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. I thought that's what Abraham had been doing all this time. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Now, what we're learning here, what we're learning besides the fact that you can negotiate with God and not get struck down, which that's kind of nice to know, isn't it? You can actually have a conversation with God and try and negotiate with him. But what we're learning is that there's something in the economy of God that says, I am not in a hurry to judge people. I am not in a hurry to wipe everybody out. It's, you know, I think sometimes, and I've encountered this as I've talked to adult people, um, there's this sense sometimes when you talk to adults that they, they think that God is out to get them. And I always tell people, if God was out to get you, you would done been got, right? It's not, it's, he knows where you live. He's got all the resources. If he wants to get you, he could. So, you know, there's this, this idea that, that God's not in a hurry, that he's, he's willing to, to, to hold off, to, to put up with an awful lot Um, there's a sense in which righteousness preserves unrighteousness, a sense that righteousness can hold off the judgment of God. And he goes on, verse 31, Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found? He said, For the sake of 20, I I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? In other words, basically, God, we're down to 1%. Okay, 1%. What if when you get there, because Abraham knows he is going to get there and he's going to see what he sees as if God doesn't already know. You know, as if God doesn't already know what's going on in Sodom. but, But Abraham's kind of thinking like we are. Abraham's thinking, well, this is hidden from God. Like we think things are hidden from God. They're not but there's a lesson here. There's a purpose in this. What if there is just 1% and they're God fearing and they're righteous and they're trying to do the right thing and you've got a thousand people, but you find 10 that are really trying to do the right thing. God, would you spare the city for 10? And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Verse 33. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Now, the two men, the, the, the three men that have left Abraham's presence now, you, as we get into the story about Sodom, we only find two. So one of them went to one of the other cities. Something happened to one of the men. We don't know what, what that's all about. But, but now we're going to get to the place where... where um, it's it's almost nighttime, and, and they're, these two men are beginning to approach the city of Sodom. And, and as they come up on the city of Sodom, Lot looks up, and he sees these two strangers about to wander in, and he feels a connection to them. He, he's going to kind of look after them for reasons that we don't know. And he, he sees them coming, and he says, why don't you come to my house and spend the night? Now, at the, at the point that he's ready to bring them into his home, he's got this whole Uh, Hospitality thing going on in his head. Okay, it's a big, big deal to have somebody stay in your house. You are obligated. It's really on you to protect these people. So he says, "Hey, won't you come spend the night at at my house?" And these two guys say, "No, we're going to bed down here in this open area right here in the middle. This looks really nice and comfortable. We're just going to bed down in there." And and Lot says, "Trust me, you really, really, really don't want to sleep in that particular part of town." Come home with me. And they're they're going back and forth and they're having this discussion. And finally, Lot is able to prevail upon them and they come home with him. Verse uh, four of Genesis 19. So we're gonna skip now to Genesis 19. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Now, this is where I'm about to change some things because we gotta clean it up a little bit. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may do with them as we please. And what that means is use your imagination, okay, as bad as it gets. And Lot said, no, 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 I've brought these guys into my house. And, And again, I can't stress how strongly enough here it is that he feels like he's got to protect these guys. But the rules were different in Sodom and we don't want new people, and we don't want people coming in messing with our culture and the way we've got things set up, and you bring them out because you know in Sodom we have the right to do whatever we want to do. And this was, again, this was as bad a culture as you can imagine. And Lot begins to negotiate with these people, and, and if you read through this, I'm not going to read it, but if you read it, the negotiation is, is it's atrocious. What he offers to do Um, But again, I just say you have to temper it with understanding just how important hospitality was for him. Finally, they decide, these guys decide, they're going to break into Lot's house. Genesis chapter 19, verse 10. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry, there's that word again, the outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us here to destroy it. Lots son-in-laws don't want to leave. Why would, they? you know, they're thinking is why would we want to leave this really cool city that we belong to and we're a part of and you know, we're kind of in the upper echelons and, and so they don't want to leave. But he convinces his wife and his daughters to, to kind of come go with him. They have excavated a couple of the cities in this particular region. And um, what they have discovered is that there, there is a layer of what they consider some kind of natural petroleum-based um, asphalt that covers everything on those two cities, um, and, and the theory is, is that when when this destruction happened, that it happened in the form of an earthquake, and when the earth opened up, that natural pockets of natural gas um, were exposed, and and that there would be lots of fires, lots of you know cooking fires, things like that in the cities. That when that natural gas was ex- was put up next to the fire, that then you had this massive fireball. And and the the thinking is that that if you could have been there and seen it, it would have looked like it was raining down fire. It would have been a horrible scene, um, a a really, really bad thing. Um, God had had enough. God did probably what if we were God, we would want to do. He'd seen enough, and he said, you know what, all right, everybody out of the pool because this is just really bad. What is the implication of all this? We have this long dialogue where Abraham is negotiating with God, and even before the story this is going on, and the story would have been enough. What's the implication? As you see this theme throughout the Bible, that from God's perspective, a little bit of righteousness goes a long, long way. That the presence of a little bit of righteousness preserves the unrighteous. That God is willing to put off giving people what they deserve because of the presence of righteous people in their midst, that he will stall on judgment, that he will stall on taking action sometimes. Here's why. As long as there is the presence of righteousness in God's eyes, that means there's hope. That means there's hope. There's a chance that when God sees righteousness, he withholds his judgment because he holds out hope That that righteousness can make a difference in that unrighteous community, in that unrighteous place, on that unrighteous team, in that unrighteous business, in that unrighteous fraternity or sorority, or in that unrighteous classroom or or unrighteous group of friends. That God looks down and he says, that little bit of righteousness, even though it's in the midst of huge darkness, that's hope. And the reason we get so frustrated with God, you know, God, how can you let this happen? How, how many of us have prayed? How many of us have watched hurricanes and landslides and, and earthquakes and all those things and just cried out, God, how much more? I mean, when, when is enough enough? I mean, when are you going to come back? I've had several conversations today, this morning, even before they knew what I was talking about today, where that was kind of the theme. God, how much longer? how much longer? I mean, I'm ready to go. This story helps answer that question. It's not that God, you know, wants to rush in and mess every, and just wipe everybody out. He loves us. It's that God sees righteousness, and he says, there's hope there. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Our Lord's patience means salvation because of the presence of righteousness. You know what it means? Simply our presence in a company could matter. Your presence on your team matters. Your presence in your office matters matters. Your presence in your school, in your classroom, among your peers, your, your presence in places that you think it doesn't matter at all. You say, Brett, I'm not even really trying all that hard. Your righteous presence matters. A little bit of righteousness, God sees it and says, you know what? That's hope for me. That tells me that I, I shouldn't rush in. God says, you, you may get frustrated with the people that you work with. You you may wonder why I allow sin, why I hold off, why I don't just come in, blow the whistle, and just end it all. You may wonder why. The reason I'm waiting, and I love the passage of Scripture that says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Man, do I love that passage of Scripture. God knows how bad it is. But your presence speaks hope to a dark world. I um, before I came to this church, I was not in ministry. I was working a, a full-time job at a very, very dark place. I would call it a morally, spiritually bankrupt place. I hated that job. One of the things that I think God has Given me a a tool for ministry, I, I would say it is a tool that I use in ministry. Is the memory that I have of walking into that place and feeling how oppressively dark it was, the 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 temptation that was all around, and the the that you just felt completely alone in terms of spiritually, you didn't feel like you had any help at all. And, and I, I just remember so many days clocking in thinking to myself, you know, I'm doing this because I've got to provide for my family, but this is not where I want to be. And God, what in the world are you doing? And and I, I just, I remember sitting on break just watching people, just both in awe of how godless they could be and at the same time praying for them and 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 at the same time praying, God protect me. I don't want to become that, but I can see myself becoming that. And if you work in a place like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I want you to know I understand that. I understand what that is. I understand what it is to wake up and think, I don't, I do not want to go back to that place. It's dark. I'm tempted there. I, I don't, it, it feels like God doesn't even exist when I'm there. And so so. I know what it feels like to be in a place that you just think God has completely abandoned. But here's what you need to know. You are righteous. And your righteous presence in that place matters to God. God says, you are my hope. You are my light. And if they're ever going to come to know, it rests on you. See, God doesn't come in and take over. God says, I'm putting that in your hands. I'm, I'm counting on you to make a difference. Listen, This church is. There's one hill we die on at this church. That is bringing people to Jesus. I know people that that I've I've been to churches where it's been about. We got to keep the bad people out, you know. I mean, we got to make sure us Christians all come together and sit in rows and sing kumbaya, and we got to make sure. You ever been to a church like that? It is the most depressing. It's like, what are we doing? I've played on softball teams where, you know, they, they do a head count. How many non-Christians they got on that team? I think our whole softball league ought to be full of non-believers. And there ought to be one or two Christians on there to kind of be the light and the righteousness. And then let's get, let's goodness gracious, if that's the only way we can get any light to some people who don't know God, let's get them all playing softball. But there are people who have a mindset, oh, you know, and I've heard sermons, you need to get yourself away from the ungodly people. No, we're righteous. They're not, they need us. God says, hey, if they're ever gonna come to know who I am, if they're ever gonna come to Jesus, a righteous person has to touch their life. Somebody who knows Jesus has gotta talk to them, speak truth into their life. Here's what you need to understand this morning. God waits, and trust me, nobody in this room Nobody in this room, I I feel very confident to say what I'm about to say. Nobody in this room wants Jesus to come back more than me. Nobody. I have cried out to God, God, what are you waiting on? How many more starving kids do we need to see? How many more hurricanes? How many more earthquakes? How many more abused kids? How many more stories about girls sold into sexual slavery do we have to hear before you... Finally, blow the whistle and say, all right, that's it. I'm coming. God, please come. I have prayed. I have poured my heart out in prayer. God, please come. And what God's answer is, is you are righteous and I'm counting on you. There are people who don't know who Jesus is and God waits and he's patient because he believes that they will repent. We have got to believe that. We have got to buy in. We have got to understand that our righteousness matters in a world that is unrighteous. So when you think to yourself, man, I, do, I, I make no difference. I go to work, it makes no difference me being at work. It matters. It matters to God. So the next time you walk into work, whether it's tomorrow, if you're so fortunate to have tomorrow off, and you go in on Tuesday, and you go into work, you go in, do you feel alone? Do you feel like you're the only one? Maybe you do, but you tell yourself, God, I will be righteousness in this unrighteous place. I will be hope. I will shine the light. I will make a difference. And never lose sight of that. You never know what someone sees when they see you. You don't know what's going through their mind as they watch you. You have no idea the example you set. The people who know you go to church and are watching you would never say a word, would never let you know that they're watching, but they're watching. We are righteous, and we're sent out into an unrighteous world, and God says, you make all the difference. A little bit of righteousness can hold off a lot of judgment for a lot of unrighteous people. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus because we, we aren't any better than these unrighteous people we're talking about. We just happen to believe in Jesus. We've, we've been forgiven. We are saved. And Lord, help us to not look down our nose at anybody. Help us to not think we're better than anybody else. We're just saved. That's the only difference. Lord, I know some of the people in this room work in very, very dark places. I've had conversations this morning with people who are on the verge of giving up. Lord, please strengthen us. Give us a new resolve. Give us a new new vision for how we can go into work and be that little glimmer of hope for the person who really, really needs it. Father, bringing people to Jesus is not some slogan we put on a door. We, We are sold out to it. It's really the only thing that really gets us jacked up, that and worshiping you, the two things that we we live for. And so, Father, help us to get past us. Help us to get over us. Help us to get over what we want and how it's comfortable for us. And help us to see the world that you see lost, unrighteous, in need. And help us to live it out. It's hard, God. We are so tempted. Our culture is oppressive. Our culture is is influential. The pressure on us is immense. Father, as we say our amens this morning and rise up to walk out of here, I pray that you would make us a people that are righteous, difference makers in our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray.